Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 84 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. This episode is an interview with the editor Anne Perry from the publishers Hodder and Stoughton. Anne and I had a very entertaining chat about how she got into publishing, what she wants to see in a manuscript, and she also gives us a little bit of advice on writing action and romance scenes, both subjects that you'll be hearing more about in weeks to come. I hope you enjoy the interview. Here it is. And welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. My guest today is Anne Perry. Anne is an editor with Hodder and Stoughton and publishes her authors as part of Hodder Fiction. She tweets as the fingers of God and spends a lot of her free time thinking about monster movies. So welcome <laughs> to the Creative Writers Tool Belt, Anne. Thank you very much. Hi. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences with reading as you were growing up and what books particularly had an impact on you? Okay, well, um, when I was a kid, I, I was very lucky because my parents were both big readers and they were both academics and our house was just full of every kind of book imaginable. Um, and I wasn't much of a reader until I hit about seven when my mom actually in a desperate effort to get me to read more came home with a box of books, wrapped it up, stuck it under the tree at Christmas. And this, this box of books included the Narnia books and it included a bunch of the very early Nancy Drew novels. Um, as your, your listeners may or may not know, Nancy Drew's been through several incarnations over the years and the original books were written in the 1930s. And that's what I had was a bunch of the books from the 1930s, some even with their original dust jackets, which to my dismay, I remember dismantling pretty um, <laughs> thoughtlessly as a kid, <laughs> not realizing their value. Anyway, so the day after Christmas, my mom sat me down, had me pick a book from the box that she'd given me. And um, she made me read a page and then she would read a page and then I had to read a page and she had to read a page. And the book that I chose was based on the dust jacket, a Nancy Drew novel called The Hidden Staircase, um, which, believe it or not, is about Nancy Drew investigating a house that has a hidden staircase. <laughs> Clues in the title there, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> um, surprisingly enough, it certainly is. So I read a page and she read a page and I read a page and she read a page. And I found this such a frustratingly slow experience that after we finished the book, I chose another Nancy Drew from the box, took it to my room and read the whole thing myself and never looked back. And that was basically my introduction to the wonderful escapist world of reading. Um, and I was a fairly precocious reader. So once I figured out that I liked reading, um, I got pretty bored with the kids' stuff. I read the Narnia books about a million times. I read the Nancy Drew novels. Um, I read basically everything else I could get my hands on. The Hobbit was a major favorite of mine. Um, clearly, sort of, there was an early preference for fantasy there. And um, then I just started looking around for other things that were interesting. And like I said, my parents were were uh, genre fiction fans. So there was a lot of SFF lying around the house. And when I was eight years old, I picked up a novel by Piers Anthony, the fourth or fifth in the Xanth series called Ogre Ogre. So I liked the cover, which had a ogre and a fairy on it. And of course, I'm eight years old. So I think that's just the most awesome thing Sounds in the world. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and I read that and I loved it. And um, I guess, you know, in retrospect, it's a little shocking to think of an eight year old reading Piers Anthony. But yeah. I understand any of the sex. And what I did get from it was two things. One, the humor was to my eight year old mind hilarious because it was all puns and eight year olds love wordplay. 
And secondly, because um, it was this sort of very accessible magical fantasy world. And he wrote with a vocabulary I really appreciated because mm. I was a fairly precocious reader. I was constantly looking for things that challenged me. And it's one of the reasons that I'd given up on sort of kids book pretty early on, because I sort of once I discovered that I liked reading, I got really bored with the stuff that was just, you know, Dick and Jane go to the store, Dick and Jane buy a puppy. Um, and I really wanted something interesting. And I loved Piers Anthony because um, there were words I didn't know. And so that sort of that moved me into the world of adult science fiction and fantasy, really. And I just never really looked back. And you moved into it fairly swiftly by the sound of it there. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, the other hobbies and interests you have? And I, I mentioned it briefly in the introduction. I hear you are keen on monster movies. <laughs> That's true. I love a monster movie. I've always loved monster movies. I think it goes back again to being a kid. My father, who was a big fan of Hammer Horror and even the earlier sort of universal monster films. So this was sort of the dawn of the, the home video world. And so he would go out on Friday and Saturday nights and rent all these movies that he hadn't seen since he was a kid, like King Kong and the mummy and Dracula and Frankenstein and bring them home. And he'd tell me a little bit about them and then we'd watch them. And um, from that point on, I just fell in love with the idea of a movie with monsters in it. <laughs> I've never really gotten over it. <laughs> what, what do you think makes a good monster then? What are the kind of like two or three things that a good monster has to have? I like the idea that um, a monster movie takes place in the real world. And it's something that just sort of twists up reality a little tiny bit. You have in a movie like King Kong or Godzilla or Cloverfield is a good sort of modern example, I think. It's the real world. It's real people doing real things, sort of living their lives. And then all of a sudden, something huge and unknowable and alien and totally other sort of enters the fray. This isn't like watching a science fiction novel where it's something huge and alien and other, but we expect it to come. Um, this is just it's just your average person living an average life. And all of a sudden, the unknowable sort of shows up on their doorstep and tries to eat them. <laughs> Or not. Um, I'm also a big fan of monster movies where the monster is not, you know, inherently a threat. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why I find them so attractive. I just like the idea of something coming along and sort of twisting everything up a little bit and making everybody question the way that they respond to the world. Again, I mentioned earlier on, you're now an editor at Hodder and Stoughton and um, your authors are published as part of Hodder Fiction. But you're also part of the Hodderscape team. So can you tell us who or what is Hodderscape? Yeah, absolutely. So Hodderscape is... In its essence, it's a way for us to reach out to the audience that we are trying to reach out to. So I'm a science fiction and fantasy editor, and I really think it's important that I know a little bit about my audience. Um, I want to know what they're talking about. I want to know what they're thinking about. I want to know how they're responding to my books, but I want to know what else they're reading and responding to. And... Um, and so we started it as Hotterscape sort of existed when I began at Hotter four and a half years ago as a Twitter feed. And it was really important to me coming from my background, working with my website, Porno Kitch, um, to enlarge it, to sort of expand the scope a little bit so that I was reaching out to people in a more meaningful sense than just talking to them on Twitter. So we created a website and um, we at first we were very ambitious and we had new content five days a week. Uh, which was <laughs> a lot of work. So um, <laughs> sorry to say we've dropped down to three days a week, but I'm still very proud of our output. And we still have this, this brilliant sort of tool through the website and through Twitter primarily, but we also use Facebook and Instagram as a way of just creating 
a bond with our audience that um, I think is really important to the work that I do, not just as an editor, but as someone who curates a list and publishes to to an audience who's who really cares about what they read. And um, it's really important to me to, to have have a sense that my audience can feel like they can get in touch with me, that they they have a personal relationship with me, the editor, with Hotter, the publisher, Hotterscape, sort of it's kind of a brand, I guess, if you'll excuse me for using kind of a marketing term there, but that they, they feel like there's a real relationship of give and take between us rather than just me sort of blindly publishing stuff into the ether and hoping people like it. I want to know what people think and I want people to trust my taste i don't know whether you'd agree with this but i think i think people who are interested in the fantastic as a genre are they're a very engaged bunch they want to be engaged don't they i think yes absolutely i mean that's certainly one of the reasons why it was so important that we have this tool to communicate with people because the sf crew um the audience out there they're they're very techie they're very engaged they're very involved in books that they love and authors that they love and they care about brands. I mean, they're much more savvy about publishers and publishing houses and individual editors than I think really maybe any other sort of niche audience out there. Um, They really care about genre publishers. And so it's, I think it's really incumbent upon me as a genre publisher to make sure that they know as much about what we're doing as possible and to feel that they can trust us. Okay. So, what trends and or developments in the genre are attracting the attention of you and your colleagues at the moment, do you think? I think there's quite a lot of interest in fairy tales and fairy stories. I'm seeing fantasy that's um, really involved with fairy tales and with sort of taking older stories that we're very used to and, and um, just poking at them a little bit to see what falls out. I think part of that might be, and this is just a, a completely personal um opinion part of it might be that we now have a whole generation of people who grew up during and after the disney renaissance sort of beginning with the little mermaid and of course the stories are all about taking the old fairy tales and reimagining them for a modern audience and i think that that maybe that a part of it is that we're seeing that audience is, is still kind of hungry for those kind of stories and certainly you know every time you go into buzzfeed there'll be 17 you know disney princesses that look like puddles that sort of thing um which is suggestive in and of itself of of an interest from an audience at large. But I think in genre particularly, because we have an audience that's very keen on reading lots of stuff, because they're looking for strong heroines, because they're looking for plots that are very interesting um, twists on things that they they might already be familiar with. Just something that, that suggests a bit of the new in addition to the familiar. I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. And I really like it. I mean, that's certainly stuff that I love reading. Sure. Um, I'm certainly a Disney princess fan from way back. <laughs> Um, so one of the other issues, one of the other th- the features that is really strong within the genre in, and kind of in publishing and perhaps culture at large is is the issue of diversity. And a yep. lot of writers are now very keen to get to grips with um, giving that proper attention and, and especially in their work. Have you got advice for writers who want to want to do that, who want to really sort of pay attention to and um or pay due respect to the issue of diversity in their work. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, um, the thing for everybody to keep in mind is, is that this audience is very savvy and they're going to know, they're going to be very suspicious if they feel like an author is um, paying lip service to something. If they feel like an author has added in, you know, a token character because the author is like, well, clearly I have to make this more diverse because that's what this audience wants. So here's, here's the black gay character. They're going to be suspicious of that. 
And so my major advice is to make sure that all writers who are interested, and I think they all ought to be, in making their books as diverse and representative and um, inclusive and accessible as possible, is to remember that every single one of these characters that they're writing is, well, I'm going to say a human being, except they might be writing a dragon, but, you know, is, is a real <laughs> character with real yes. thoughts and real motivations. And I'm yes. minded, actually, of something that I believe Dorothy Sayers said in response to a reviewer who said to her, you, you're a woman, but you write men extremely well. <laughs> she responded with something along the lines of, yes, well, I remembered that they're human beings also, and I tried to write them that way. <laughs> um and so I think that's the most important thing to remember. And obviously you have to, as a corollary to that, as an author, you have to do your research. You can't write about a community that you're not intimately familiar with by just doing a little sort of superficial research for an hour on Google. You have to actually sit down and do your research properly the same way you would do anything else. If you want to create an interesting community that's real to life, that's going to that, that's gonna make your readers feel like you know what you're doing, um, you have to do your research. You have to do your homework. And then beyond that, you have to be humble as a writer. You have to remember that you're going to get stuff wrong and people are going to ding you on that. And that that's not they're not doing it because they're mad at you or they hate you. They're doing it because they want it to be right and they want you to be better. And you have to you have to sort of keep in mind when you're writing these things that you are going to get something wrong. And it's your job to accept that gracefully and make sure that you get it right next time. Hmm. Okay, that, that that's interesting. I I think for any anybody who's listening to this, if if you haven't listened to episode sixty of the podcast, I suggest you go back and check that. That was that was one we called "Writing the Other," which was when I interviewed uh, Nisi Shaw and Daniel Jose Older and talked to both of them about this subject. So um, the other thing I want to ask you, Anne, as well, is to come back to to your role as an editor. When a story crosses your desk, what is it that makes you continue to read rather than just kind of toss it in the rejection pile? <laughs> There are a lot of different things. I So one of the things that makes me realize that I need to pay serious attention to whatever I'm reading. So I start reading and I sit back and realize that I've started to think about what the cover is going to look like, what the marketing is going to look like, what the shout line is going to be, how I'm going to pitch it to people. If I realize that that's been turning around in the back of the back of my head while I've been reading when I realized that I've got a really strong proposition in front of me that I have to take seriously. Because if I can see that right away, that means I can pitch it and I can sell it to other people and they're going to be able to see it. And that's really important. Could you just define the, the term shout line to oh, yeah, for us? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, on the original Alien poster, it said, in space, no one can hear you scream. Yes, yeah. That's a shout line. That uh, okay. It's a way of pitching your book to an audience. And I think, I think novels took it from Hollywood. I mean, I'm almost 98% certain without having done my homework <laughs> that it's that we, um, in publishing saw that this was working on posters for Hollywood and we're like, Oh, we can do that too. And stuck them on our books. That sounds very plausible, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Absolutely. I know obviously the, the stories you get are, are rich and diverse, but are there any, are there any patterns or trends or things that particularly you think do make you go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick with this one. So let's see. I try not to go into any manuscript that I'm reading on submission with any sort of um, preconceived ideas about it. I generally try not to read the synopsis ahead of time. I just want the writing to speak for itself. Um, not everybody does this, but this is important to me. I just sort of sit down and start reading submissions. 
Um, I get enough submissions over the course of a week, say, that I can sort of forward them all to my Kindle, forward them and then start reading them. And because they're just Word documents or PDFs on my Kindle, then I am not seeing the agent's sort of covering letter and I'm not seeing the synopsis and I'm not seeing all the stuff that, that the agent is sort of sending with it. I'm just seeing the work by itself. And I'm the reason I do that is because I really want to just judge the work on its own, on its merit. I don't want to be informed. I want to be informed as little as possible, I should say, by all of the stuff that goes into trying to sell me a manuscript. Um, and, you know, of course, I'll have read the agent's covering letter when I got the email in the first place or had the phone call with the agent, whatever it was, when they first pitched it to me. But at the end of the day, I just want the writing to stand for itself. Um, I definitely want to be gripped by the first pages, but um, it's not <laughs> – there are certainly novels that start out as a slow burn. And, you know, certainly one of – I think one of the most famous of the last maybe 15 years might be Trenomiaville's Pretty Doe Street Station, just a Brilliant. Oh, wow. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and his writing is gorgeous, but it is a very slow start. Um, and so in that case, sort of thinking back on it, you know, one of the reasons that I kept reading it when I started reading it, and of course, I wasn't an editor at the time, I was just a fan. Um, and it was the only I didn't know who he was. I'd never read a China Mia book before. I just sort of somebody said, you like this, Anne. And so I started reading it. Um, you know, he his writing was quite beautiful. It was poetic. There was a ton of imagination. He's a ferociously imaginative author. And all of that was sort of very obvious on the page. So even though I wasn't gripped by the plot from page one, there was enough potential there that I wanted yeah. to find out what happens next. And so um, I'm not sure how great <laughs> this is in terms of advice, concrete advice for writers who just want me to say, well, here's what you should do in order to grip an editor from the very beginning. Um but the uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is there are a lot of different things that will keep me reading a book. And um, it was actually Simon Spanton, who was an editor at Galance, who said something long before I ever even entertained notions of becoming an editor myself that has always stuck with me. And what he said yeah. was, when you're reading a book on submission as an editor, you're looking for a reason to stop. Yes. So, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, and... I I mean, that's true. You get a lot of submissions and it's not that I'm looking for a reason to stop, but I think it's good for authors who are writing <laughs> with an eye towards getting published to keep in mind that that is something that will happen, that the person who's reading your book on the other end of the submission line <laughs> is someone who has a lot of submissions in their box, has a lot of stuff to get through, is going to turn down 98% of them. I mean, I only pick up one or two new authors a year, if that, and that they're, you know, it's much easier for an for an editor to say no than it is to say yes. So get everything right. Don't put it, get a proofreader. Try not to have any typos in the beginning of the book. I mean, I've, I've read books that have come from agents or have been from the slush pile that have a typo in the first couple of pages. I'm like, come on, guys. It's this big typo. This isn't just like an easy misspelling. This is a major issue. <laughs> um, and I would never stop reading a book because of a typo. But, you know, it, it sort of, it does sort of sit in the sort of morass that sort of churns through my brain as I'm reading a submission. If there's a typo, you know, on page three. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I've heard that advice before. Actually don't, don't give the editor a reason to put your an easy, you know, a silly reason Absolutely. to reject your book. So if it's like, I guess if the submission says three chapters and synopsis, don't send them 50,000 words and no synopsis or something stupid like that. It's, it's, yeah. It's get, get the easy things right. At least I suppose, isn't it? Absolutely. I had I did an open submissions window in 2015 and um, I had somebody who sent me multiple emails 
asking about what I meant by first three chapters and or first 15,000 words. And this, this author, I mean, he wanted to give himself the best chance, but what he wound up doing was breaking apart his five part novel, which was extremely long into um, five separate novels and sending me the first three chapters of each of the separate novels. And I'm like, come on guy, that's not going to help. <laughs> um, yeah. So trying to, <laughs> I think to be thoughtful about about what you're doing and why you're doing it. You talked about China Mieville earlier, and that that just made me think about um, issues like voice and the voice of the writer and how important that is. And when I spoke to Lee Harris when I interviewed him uh, from for the editor at Tor, I said to him, you know, what do you look for in writing? And he immediately said, voice. Voice is a thing that attracts him. So is it is is voice something that you're looking for? distinctive original voice in 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 the work yes and voice is one of the hardest things to explain when you know when i have an author who wants to be published who's you know for example asking me well what is voice what do you mean when you say that i'm like well that is really hard to define i want to feel certain from a uh, when i start reading a submission that the author has a really good sense of that they have control over their material and they have a really good sense of what they want it to sound like and how it is going to sound. I want, I want to be completely caught up in the world that the author has imagined. And that's not just in terms of world building. I mean, I don't want to know the history of every object that each character is picking up. I want something larger and more ineffable than that. I want the sense that the author is completely comfortable in this world, that they have complete control over material and that they are telling me a story. I mean, exactly the same way that you know, that, that people used to listen to the bards of the old, you know, 500 years ago in, in and, and, and feel feel certain when they sat down that they were going to get a really good poem from a really interesting person. Um, it's exactly that sort of sense that I'm in good hands with a storyteller who knows what he or she is doing and is confident what they're going to do. The best ways that I think an author can develop a sense of voice is by experimenting with, with short fiction, actually. And you don't have to publish any short fiction. But I would say that sort of sitting down and writing a short story, not necessarily as such, but sort of sitting down and making up a character and then writing story, writing a couple of paragraphs from that character's perspective. So you get sense of how that character might see the world and how they might communicate it to a reader. Um, experimenting with short fiction is a really good way for authors to experiment with voice and sort of develop, develop the tools that they might need to, um, to create a voice that they can then expand to a novel length project or beyond. Now, some of the things you said there, I, I think, touches on authenticity and the need to be authentic in character and, and setting. Have you got something to say, do you think, about authenticity? Is it is that important to you in the work? Absolutely. I think authenticity is one of the most important and, again, sort of ineffable and sort of difficult to define elements of good writing. But authenticity is it's sort of, it's a contract between the writer and the reader that the writer knows what they're doing and the reader can trust them and that the reader believes what the writer is saying. <laughs> and so in, um, so it goes back and forth between both. And, um, in part, it means that, um, the writer has done the research that they need to do to make something feel realistic to the reader. Um, and that's incredibly important in science fiction and fantasy where so much of what of what a writer is doing is making stuff up. So, for example, I have, I have an author who writes, um, who's working on a fantasy series for me. And before she ever really started writing the series, 
she sat down and wrote a world Bible that was essentially an anthropological text about the fantasy world that she was creating. And she won't let me look at it, and she refuses to ever let it see the light of day outside of her own computer. (laughs) But what it's done is it's given her, it allowed her to sort of create the world before she ever sat down and put pen to paper to put a story in that world. But she knew what all of the various kingdoms in the world, what they were like, and what their gods were, and what their histories were, and why, you know, one hated the other, and this, that, and the other. And all of that is important because at the end of the day, the reader who will never get to read that. I mean, if I never get to read it, the reader definitely won't ever get to read it, which I'm very unhappy about because I desperately want to read it. <laughs> um, but it, it creates a sense in the reader's head, even if they don't realize that they're feeling it, that this world is real, that it's fully realized, that it's fully fleshed out, that it's believable, that it's authentic. And there's, I mean, that's what it is at the end of the day, that it's something that could exist even if it doesn't. And so authenticity in science fiction and fantasy is just hugely important because if, it, if an audience, if if a reader of a science fiction or a fantasy novel doesn't feel that what they're reading is you know, authentic, that the voice isn't real, that the thing that the author is doing doesn't, it, that the, the author is not selling what they think they're selling, they're going to put the mm. book down. So I suppose even like, if you if you do all the hard work and the research, even that if you don't you don't have to talk about that explicitly in the book, but it just comes through, doesn't it? I suppose if you've done that hard work in the background. so my um, academic background is in history, and one of the hardest lessons you learn when you are writing a dissertation in history is that ninety percent of the research that you do will never show up on the page. And yeah. Um, yeah. so when I was first first in grad school and writing papers for my um, master's thesis. I'd, you know, I'd be going on research tangents. I'd, fo- I'd follow some sort of like wormhole down uh, until I found some really interesting nugget of information. And then I would sort of shoehorn it into my <laughs> into my thesis. My thesis advisor, bless him, who made me write 10 pages a week and then yelled at me about them. Um, every single time he would just hand it back to me with red lines through all of my sort of flights fancy and say, and this is great. He called me Miss Perry. Miss Perry, <laughs> this is very interesting, but does not support your argument. So you have to cut it. And, um, and that taught me a couple of really good lessons that I have found apply very well in my sort of editorial life. It's that, you know, however wonderful your research or your imagination is the end of the day, it it needs to be in support of plot or character. And if it's not doing anything, you just have to Screw your courage to the sticking place and cut it out. It's got to go. And, and it's, you know, it's a pity if you find, but you know, if it's got real potential, then you can turn it into something else later on down sure. the road. I, yeah. I, in the early episodes of the podcast, I banged on incessantly about authenticity and the difference between authenticity and something actually being real. I'm trying to explain to people that authenticity was around. It's credible, but That's not really true. That's really nice way of putting it. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Is there anything else you want to say about authenticity before we move on? Because otherwise I'm going to end up spending all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a podcast in and of itself. I think, you know, for readers, for example, for or let's say for writers who who are listening to us and thinking to themselves, well, none of what she's saying is remotely helpful to me, the wannabe writer, <laughs> because how is any of that going to help me write a more authentic book? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the authenticity that you know, that I'm looking for and that readers are looking for is, as you say, it's a kind of believability. It's an investment in the characters. 
it's sort of trusting that the author is going to make them act like reasonable human beings, shall we say, when presented with a situation. You know, when you make your characters act just completely weird and respond to situations in in very strange ways, then <laughs> that, shall we say, breaks the um, the contract of authenticity mm. that the author and the reader have uh, formed with each other. Absolutely. And, and talked in one of the episodes about the contract that, that the author has with all the, his or her readers and how important that is. Okay, so I want to carry on with Becky Chambers. Now you've you've worked with Becky on a couple of, but you you may be working on the third one by now. I don't know, but you've certainly worked on two books uh, yes. with her. Now, can you tell me how um, Hodder acquired her work, and how does the editing process work between the two of you? <laughs> so um, the the sort of longer version of the story is that Becky and I met at. Um, Worldcon in London in 2014. She was living, she was living in Iceland at the time, and of course I'm living in London, so we didn't know each other. A mutual friend introduced us, and she and I actually have a different memory of which mutual friend initially introduced us. <laughs> we discovered a couple of weeks ago, um, to the hilarity of everyone. But yes, so we met via a mutual friend, and what she did was she handed me a business card, and she said while she was introducing herself, she mentioned um, as an aside that she had just self-published a book. And that's all she said about it. And several months later, my husband actually read the book um, just for fun. He remembered her mentioning it and he Googled it and he found it and he bought a copy and he read it. And he turned to me and he said, you have to read this right now. It's brilliant. And I read it and I took it to acquisitions the next week um, because it's just as anybody who is listening to this podcast knows it's brilliant. And so um, it was at the time just completely self-published and um, she had no plans whatsoever to publish traditionally. And so I sent her an email saying, hello, I am from Hotter. You may not remember me. We met a few months ago. And do you have any interest in publishing traditionally? And she wrote back saying, sure. I imagine she was quite excited. That, <laughs> and so you know, it went from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, so that it went from there and she I didn't do any editing whatsoever to the long way to a small angry planet in part because I loved it the way it was. I didn't think it needed anything. And it, the thing about the long way to a small angry planet is that this, the, the title contains the message of the book. You know, it is a book about the journey, not the destination. And so the fact that it's in its way, a very episodic space opera um, where the, the last couple of chapters are really sort of, the last thing that happened in the book. And it's not the sort of big epic battle on the Death Star with, you know, Luke Skywalker shooting a womp rat and blowing the <laughs> blowing the Death Star up. It's not that. It's it's a book about getting to the Death Star, basically. <laughs> Forgive me for mixing my <laughs> metaphors. So she um so I didn't have to do any editorial work on it at all, and I didn't want to because I loved it the way that it was. And she and I then agreed we we sealed a deal, signed a deal for book two. And she wanted to write another standalone book set in the same universe with some of the same characters. And I said, sure. And I absolutely trusted her to write another wonderful book because she'd already written a wonderful book. And, you know, the lightning does strike twice. <laughs> so nine months later, she sent me a book. And I remember she sent it to me in February of this year. And she sent it on like a Wednesday. And I was going on. Um, I was taking Friday off to go spend a couple of days up in the up in the country. So I sent it to my Kindle promising myself I'd read it on the train ride, train ride up. And I started it that morning, that Friday morning, and I got about 
hundred pages into it. I turned my Kindle off because it was so good. I didn't want to finish it too quickly. So, <laughs> um, and this is extremely unusual for me. I really reading books when I have them either on submission or when I have them under contract and I'm getting the first draft of a book in. I like to read them in a single sitting. So I've got the whole thing and when I do my, when I think about it again. And sometimes I, I go back and write an editorial letter immediately. And sometimes I go back and reread the book and then write the editorial letter. But in this case, I just, it was such a pleasure to read. And it was such, it, it was in such good shape that I didn't want to, I just wanted to read it like a regular book. And I, I wanted to make it last. So I let myself read about 100 pages every night for three nights. And, um, and then I wrote to her when I got back on Monday, got into my office on Monday morning, and I suggested two changes and sent the email off. And then a day later, I got an email back from her that was rather flabbergasted saying, I thought you were going to hate it because it was really hard to write. But it was wonderful. And I didn't want her to make any changes to it because I loved the way that it was. I thought it was in superb shape. This is not usual, by the way. <laughs> I was going to say, this is uh, anybody listening to this, this is extremely unusual, unusual isn't it? Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, I mean that the host. I mean the host. It's an interesting story, but it's an unusual yeah. story. Uh, I'm I'm interested to know how, when you first took uh, the long way to a small angry planet, to acquisitions, and when you presented it internally, how far did it did you, how far did you take it before you felt able to go back to Becky and say, okay, you know, let's we had a chat, didn't we, and let's do a deal. How how far through the process were you? Um. So I got a few people in house to read it right away. Um, a few people that I thought would be sympathetic and really like it. Um, and so they were sort of my advance guard. And then when I took it to the acquisitions meeting, they were also in the meeting with me. And then when I started talking about it, they were able to pipe up and say, I read it and it's wonderful, which is what happened. And that got more people in the meeting to sort of perk up and take it seriously. And um, it just, it kind of spread very slowly, but it, it sort of percolated out from there where kind of like it has in real life, and this, again, is, is very rare in um, someone one department would read it and then turn to someone else and say, you have to read this book. And that's sort of the way that it went, kind of both internally and then externally. Um, someone would read the book and then they would just, they would go online or they would turn to a coworker or they'd come home and talk to their, their partner and say, you've got to try this book. <laughs> That's how it happened with The Long Way to a Small Planet. Again, very unusual. I can't actually say that I've had another book that's had quite the same response in-house. I mean, usually, I mean, the, the, certainly the more traditional editorial route is, you know, something comes in on submission, and I like it, but I think it needs a little work, and so I get in touch with the agent, and, and we sort of, we go from there, and sometimes I put it in, and sometimes I, yeah. I meet with the author, and sometimes I talk with them ahead of times about whether they would be interested in, in making the changes, and sometimes we just buy the book, and then we have go get into the editorial notes, and and you know I've got I've got a number of people at work who are fans of the kind of book that I publish, um, who like my taste in books that I can always go to and say I've got a really interesting submission I'd love to get your thoughts on it, and they're very good about reading them and getting back to me. Then what I take to, for example, my acquisitions process or my acquisitions meeting, and I say I've got this book, and you know Joe from sales and uh, Jane from marketing really really like it, and they they both are very positive about it, and I think there's a lot of potential there. 
Um, and in many cases, you know, a lot of people have read it when I send it, when I take a book to acquisitions, I circulate it around the entire office. So everybody has the opportunity to read it. And quite a few people do. Um, so, you know, the, I mean, the company doesn't want to invest in a book that nobody has read or people don't think has potential. So no, quite a lot of people, not, yeah. the books before, yeah. before we even get to the meeting. And it's just, it just that Becky sort of broke the mold on that in every, as in everything else. <laughs> kind of different with her. <laughs> so I want to talk about um, acquisitions meetings and, and that kind of stuff a little bit. And, and not everybody listening to this will know even what an acquisitions meeting is. And I wondered if we could explore that in the context of, of just a question around the challenges that a manuscript faces uh, okay. before it's published. So if, if you get a manuscript in um, either directly or from an agent and you like it, and you think, yeah, maybe we could run with this. And what what are the kind of hurdles it has to get over between you or one of your editorial colleagues like something and it's actually published? So there are a few things that have to happen. Um, I have to get excited about it because at the end of the day, the editor who takes who runs with the manuscript is going to be basically the project manager for that book from acquisition to publication and beyond for the author's entire career with the publishing company. Um, it's very unlikely that the the author will change editors. So if you are if you find a manuscript that you like and it's an author you don't publish, then you're not just acquiring a manuscript, you're acquiring, you know, a portion of the author's career. And if you're very lucky, it'll be the author's entire career, which is an amazing thing to happen. So you yourself have to be confident that you are that you and this author can work together, that you and this author can can publish a book together that's going to be brilliant that you will both be really proud of um, and that you are going to be able to convey your vision for the book. And by vision, I mean publication vision. So what the cover is going to look like, what the marketing is going to be, publicity is going to be, who the audience is, how we're going to reach the audience. I mean, how, how that book is going to be turned from a manuscript on your computer into a physical object on a bookshelf in a bookstore that people are then going to want to pick up and buy for whatever reason. So you have to be confident in your own vision for that book. And then you have to be able to convey that to your colleagues immediately. And so that's one of the reasons why um, sort of referencing back to an earlier part of our conversation tonight, when I say that I know I've got a serious book that I have to take seriously because I start thinking about what the cover looks like that's because that's the first step towards a publishing vision that I then will need to be able to communicate from from the moment I decide to to move forward with the manuscript. So um, I let's say I as the editor, I find a manuscript I really like. The first thing I do is get some second reads. Usually within editorial, I've got some colleagues in marketing and publicity, as I said, who um, share my taste in books and are always happy to sort of at least sort of dip in and give it a give it a try and see what they think. And they're all very with me. I mean, I absolutely recognize that my colleagues' time is valuable and I don't want to waste it and waste my time. So they won't read a book that they aren't enjoying. They will not force themselves to finish anything. And I don't expect them to, but I, I if they do say that they'll, you know, give it a look, then I appreciate that. And if they are able then to feed back to me and say, you know what, I read it in a single sitting and I loved it, that means that the book probably has legs. Mm. Um, so those initial responses are really important. And if they're strong enough, I then come up with, um, I have sort of a sheet of paper that I fill out 
that um, is called a pre-acquisition form, essentially, that um, allows me to write out a very bare bones version of my publishing vision for the book. Um, sort of says what the comparison titles are, um, what the author, you know, what there's if they have a sales history, if they're a debut author, what some comparison titles are that, you know, when they were debuts, how they sold and um, sort of give give everybody in the company who's going to be looking at that a chance to rec to see what I envision for the book, even if they don't have time to dip into the book itself before the actual positions meeting. So I circulate that and the manuscript, get some reads, and then I go to this meeting and it's everybody who's on the board at Hotter and Stoughton is able to sit in on this meeting and question me about the book. And it sounds, <laughs> sounds pretty horrifying. It's actually not that yeah. bad. Um, that, sounds, heard, that sounds pretty freaky. So everybody on the board at Hodder and Stoughton can sit in on the acquisitions meeting. Yes. And ask you, uh, and do they? Do, do they, they, do they Everybody all... does. Um, certainly the MD and the, um, the head of sales and um, the heads of the various departments are all there. And they definitely want to make sure, because it's important to them to make sure that I'm bringing them a book that I think that we can sell and that I think that, we know how to sell and that we know what the audience is. So they'll all be there and they'll ask me questions. Um, but <laughs> it's not usually the entire board. And I have definitely heard horror stories about other publishers who grill editors when they bring manuscripts in for acquisitions. I'm, I'm quite lucky in, at Hotter because they, they're willing, they don't, you know, they don't put me through any less of a ringer. It's just that they're very nice about it. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Well, that's, and, and this, this kind of brings me to a, a a related question and i think you you might have touched very slightly on this i think the days when the writer sends something off to the publisher and and then expects the publisher to do everything for them those days are gone now (laughs) so writers have to kind of help themselves um and i'm thinking here about things like speaking at events having an online presence getting the blog going twitter fate all that um but what as an editor and as a person within a publishing company what are you looking to what are you looking for from writers in terms of then ha- them helping themselves either to help you with your job to persuade other people to, to take the a book or once once they've got a deal to actually you know work with you on it? So I suspect that not everybody will agree with me on this one. But for me, the reason that it's important that authors have some sort of either presence on social media or be willing to go and talk at events of whatever stripe is not just because, you know, they need to do their own publicity and marketing and stuff like that. Um, Cause that's not the case. I mean, we, we wouldn't take on a book unless we thought that we could public, you know, publicize it and market it adequately um, to its needs. Um, it's because certainly for science fiction and fantasy, because the audience really, really, really invests in a personal connection with the authors. Um, and so SF fans have, you know, they're very tech savvy. They're always on the cutting edge of everything. Um, and it's really important to them to feel like they've got that personal connection with authors. And this is not, um, this is not, I think, always quite so necessary in every other genre out there. But certainly in this genre where you have a very active and very engaged audience, it's really important that authors be able to, to communicate with that audience to a degree. And I know it, it puts a burden on the authors and, and it, it does. I mean, there's no denying that it's, it's a lot of work to, you know, full-time job, write a book on your nights and weekends, and then also, you know, have to go to conventions or feel like you have to be funny on Twitter. And that's all sort of part of the job. But the fact is, in this genre, 
it is something that's important to the audience. And um, so that's why certainly in SFF, that um, social media presence and going to conventions is important. And again, I, I say that knowing that it is also it's tough on authors. I mean, it's, it's tough on everybody who has to do it. I, I, when I was out, when Becky Chambers was here a couple of weeks ago and I was out on tour with her, it was exhausting. And, you know, I was only doing it for a couple of days. It's really important, especially with the SFF audience that authors have this connection with them. And the best way to establish it is by having some sort of presence and whether it's being, you know, amazing on panels, just being on panels, Going to conventions and hanging out in the bar. I mean, BarCon is certainly a, a meaningful and significant way to do exactly that. That doesn't have pressure of, you know, being on a panel or being funny on Twitter. Okay. Just a kind of quick question as well. If somebody wants to submit uh, to HODL, um, this, this may be different for different editors. I don't know. Um, do they have to have an agent first? Do you have submission windows? How do you guys do this? So we did an open submissions window in 2015. And um, we are definitely planning another one for 2017. Um, 2016 sort of unfolded in such a way that I was not able to do an open submissions window. Um, I I really like open submissions windows. I really, first of all, I want to see what people are writing because it's it's such an interesting bellwether of where genre is going. But also, I just it's really important to me to feel as though people who want to write have a connection with us and that they can, they, they feel that there's some sort of relationship to whatever degree with us as publishers and them as writers. Um, ordinarily we don't take unagented submissions in part because, and I'm sure that you've had plenty of agents on over, you know, over the course of your podcast. So they've sort of talked through why it is that an agent is such an important part of the equation. Um, but ordinarily, I don't take unagented submissions. Um, I do, you know, if something sort of winds up coming through the slush pile, and they do occasionally, um, you know, somebody will send a manuscript to Hotter. It does happen. And <laughs> take a look at it and be like, well, Anne, this is this is a science fiction novel. And um, I read a bit of it and I thought it was pretty good. So you should take a look. If that happens, I'm always happy to read and feedback. But it's tough because you have to do there's quite a lot of personal feedback that goes into um, an unagented writing a response to an unagented submission and um, it takes a lot of time and um, time is time is really valuable. And so it's not that I don't want, I don't want authors to be able to, to you know, hear from me. It's just that I, I will not be able to give them the kind of time that they deserve if they, they come to me unagented. Whereas if, if they come to me through an agent, then I can respond to the agent and the agent can then convey sort of my feelings to the author. And it makes it a lot easier for all of us. <laughs> and when you, when you do get um, stuff across your desk from new writers, what are the big problems that you see with the work that comes through? Let's so see. Well, it's, um, it's hard to find sort of a commonality one of the things that does happen is that you will get books by debut novelists that feel like retreads of books that you've read a hundred times before. And that can be kind of tough to deal with because you don't want to just write a single line back to the agent saying, I'm sorry, but this is no different from 50 other books I've read about, you know, three kids in the dy dystopic future because an author has poured their heart and soul into it. But it <laughs> that said, you know, if you, you get the sort of the 50th book about three kids in a dystopic future, um, it can be tough. So I do see a lot of books where it feels like the author has not quite figured out what twist they're bringing to the world. Um, they need to, to make the book stand out from the crowd. And, um, 
I just want something that makes me sort of sit up and take notice and it free kids in the dystopic world. But you know, maybe it's also a retelling of the Odyssey. I don't know, but that could be really interesting. It's just figuring out a way to negotiate the fact that, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, but also that each author, and it sort of comes back to the authorial voice too. It's like, what, what has the author done to make what I've been submitted individual? Uh, I think that's, I think that's the biggest issue is that it just gets stuff sometimes that doesn't feel unique enough. Are there any, are there any kind of technical things that are like if only everybody who wrote me stuff wrote stuff and said in could just <laughs> think about you know whatever it is um so one of the things that's very interesting of course in science fiction and fantasy is world building and i get two extremes i either get a world that is incredibly well built at the expense of character and plot or I get character-driven or plot-driven novel that's set in a world that just feels like somebody could have done a lot more with it. And so finding the sort of happy medium between making sure that there's enough plot and enough character to make me happy as a reader, but also that there's enough world-building that the world the characters and the plot are inhabiting feels real and it feels lived in and it feels authentic. <laughs> we keep hitting these words over and over again. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's that word again. It's really yeah. important. So that's something that I I see quite a lot. And so I guess if I were going to suggest something to um, writers who are listening, uh, it would be to think about things like, certainly if you're world building, to think about whether or not you actually need all of that detail, what it's actually contributing to the plot and the character, because at the end of the day, and there are people who read fantasy novels or science fiction novels because they love the world building, but those, those are not the books that I like. And those are not the books that I'm going to publish. Um, I really care about character and plot and I want, I want the world to serve the plot and to serve the characters rather than the other way around. Yeah. Okay. In, in the podcast, I've more recently been, um, talking about opening scenes uh, like first chapters first few lines even um what do you think are the essential requirements for an opening scene the first page or so you need to feel immediately thrust into the action and one of the one of the tricks that you see quite a lot in thrillers for example is opening every chapter or opening the beginning of the book with first name stood on a cliff and stared out at the sea Um, but that's it I mean starting with a person's name and showing them doing something and just moving it along from there and it's it is an old trick but it is an effective trick because it just gets you straight into what's happening Um, and so that that immediacy is is certainly something that will just get the reader going right away that said of course we have things like Lady Shatterley's Lover which opens with a sort of <laughs> a rumination on um disaster basically or of course uh pride and prejudice which famously opens with with sort of the an ironic commentary on what turns out to be the theme of the novel um which <laughs> both of which belie what i have just said <laughs> so in those cases of course they're very clever but what you see is authors who take the wrong lessons from austin or from lawrence think that what they have to do is open the book with a really long, clever rumination rather than remembering that what Jane Austen does is she starts with a sentence about, um, you know, rich men looking for wives and then moves straight into the action or with Lawrence. I mean, he starts with a rumination on disaster and moving on after your life has fallen into chaos and moves straight to the action. 
And so a, a first chapter, a first line, a first page, it just has to draw you in right away. It has to make you care, if only to say what the hell is happening. <laughs> Um, and keep reading. I guess they they are also things of their time, aren't they, Austin and Lawrence, and that 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 kind of work. But um, the other types of scene that I want to talk about um, in the podcast in the next couple of episodes are around uh, romance scenes or love scenes and action okay. scenes. Okay. Um, so, do you have any thoughts on either or both of those kinds of scenes? Just clues about best practice and bits of advice for writers. Absolutely. <laughs> Always got ideas about everything. <laughs> Full of advice. Um, so action, choreography is important. Um, and it seems it seems like an obvious thing. I mean, I'm sure that 98% of the people listening will think to themselves, well, I would never have something that couldn't happen happen in my action scene. But you would be surprised. Um, and so the author, I mean, to make an action scene work, the author is going to have to think about whether it could work. And that's the first and most important thing about making an action scene work. And actually, there's a there's an element of choreography to a love scene, too, but we'll get there. Um, <laughs> the important thing with an action scene is, first and foremost, that it actually could work. Um, and then secondly, that the author doesn't get hung up on the action scene, that it doesn't become too detailed, that it doesn't become too overwhelming, Um and of course, with the caveat that every single thing that I'm saying, there is is not a hard and fast rule. I can think of a book off the top of my head that breaks it and does so incredibly well. But I would say if an author is experimenting with writing an action scene, that the thing to do is a to make sure it all works and b to make sure that it it's there's not too much detail that the 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 characters I mean that you're not you know reading about every gout of blood that spurts from fifteen broken noses at any one time. Um. With regard to love scenes, and, you know, jokingly, yes, there is an element of choreography to love scenes, but I think the most important thing that I would say about love scenes, and to a degree action scenes also, there's certainly a hefty overlap between the two in the Venn diagram of <laughs> writing. What It's to ask what purpose they're serving in the larger narrative. Um, and a lot of people like to put sex scenes in their books because they like reading them or they like writing them or whatever. And, you know, no judgment. But the fact of the matter is if the sex scene isn't working, uh, your editor might ask you to cut it. And, you know, it has to, it has to further either plot or character to some degree. And if it's just, if it's just a random sex scene in the middle of the book, it's not doing that. And um, it's not, it's not helping the book at all. And at the end of the day, my job and the job of every editor is to make sure that the book tells a story efficiently and well. And um, a love scene or an action scene can bring the book grinding to a halt. Um, and so just making sure that they're doing what they need to do and that they're they're there to assist in plot and character and not um, to detract from it are really important considerations. So so action scenes and love scenes or sex scenes, they just like any other scene, they have to earn their place in the book. They have to show their worth. Absolutely. You have to be able to say what what would what would I lose if I took this scene out or whatever it is that you do to test those things. Okay. I want to move on and just ask you a little bit um about books you've read. Uh, and, sure. and books and stuff. So, are there books that you've read recently that have really excited you or inspired you? Uh, just one or two books you said this. Uh, this is a great book, fantastic book, and I loved <laughs> it. And this is why. Okay, so um, 
I've just been reading Francis Harding's The Lie Tree, and I feel bad that I have let it go for so long, because obviously everybody's been talking about how wonderful it is for ages, and I've read several other of her novels, and they're all wonderful. The Lie Tree, which of course brilliantly won the Costa Book of the Year this year, which is absolutely fantastic, because of course it's a YA novel, um, which it was up against some pretty hefty competition, um, absolutely deserved its win. It's a brilliant book, um, really strong characters, really strong voice, really strong action. It's just, it is a, it is a perfectly brilliant book in every way. Frances is a superb craft, craftsman when she writes and there's not a wasted word. There's nothing that's out of place or wrong. There's not a single moment where I'm reading a sentence going, sort of going through the book sentence by sentence and thinking to myself, well, maybe somebody should have told her to cut that. It's, Everything is there for a purpose, and it's all beautiful. Um, so that's been a real pleasure to read. And um, I just read, as we were talking about romance novels, I just read an Eloisa James novel called My American Duchess. And um, like I said, I really love romance yeah. novels, and I read them for pleasure, and they're, they're a nice break from sort of the stuff that I read uh, for work. So I really enjoyed that one. And... Um, she does very interesting. She uses sex scenes well because, of course, she is in she's writing romance novels. And um, quite a lot of the point of a romance novel is to have, you know, two characters who spend, I don't know, a third or a half of the novel lusting at each other and then finally consummating it, which is just the way the genre works, which I'm perfectly fine with. And so one of the things that I like about her books is that the the characters are all very smart and they're all very believable and they're all very funny. And so I get really invested in their relationships. So when they finally do consummate it, I'm like, ah, this is great. I totally am on board with this relationship and its ultimate conclusion. <laughs> so it sounds like a, a sex scene between two people who we as a reader, readers don't care about or we don't know who they are. Is like that doesn't really work as a as a as a. Oh, it's so boring. Yeah. But but if but if you know if you feel like you know the characters, then you're kind of invested in what they're up to, at some level. Absolutely. Okay, and it also sounds like there. I mean, I I don't really know the romance genre terribly well. Um, I was under the perhaps mistaken impression that one of the deals with the romance genre was that you keep your protagonists apart for as long as possible and just kind of use that as an engine for the whole piece but it sounds as if maybe you don't necessarily have to do that from what you just said yeah no there can be <laughs> i think there can be quite a lot of sex the um at various different parts of the book depending on what you're reading um you keep them apart sort of less based on their unfulfilled sort of physical attraction and more based on their their feelings for each other so in this one for example they have sex they start having sex halfway through the book but they they get into, it sounds very silly to say out loud, but basically they get into an argument about whether or not they love each other and whether or not they can love each other and whether or not they should love each other because it's sort of a, their marriage is one of convenience. And so the driving force of the book actually is not whether or not they'll have sex because they do and quite a lot and they really enjoy it. It's how they feel about each other and sort of the, the emotional climax of the book comes when the two of them realize that they do love each other and they're willing to say it to each other and sort of move on with their lives from there. So yeah, <laughs> interesting. So I'm, um, I'm um, now. I want to talk about Hodder books now as well with you. And, okay. And um, I'm conscious that this might mean you end up have, indulging in a bit of favoritism or a little or whatever. But um, are there any new titles from Hodder or recent titles from Hodder that you particularly would want to draw our attention to? Yes. So we've got a book publishing a little later in 2017. I think it's. 
little later because as you no doubt know publishing always works somewhere between one and two years ahead of time so like in my mind it's already april 2017 um i believe it's publishing in early 2017 but i'll have to check the date for you it's called the roanoke girls and it is it's a very strange very dark novel that in its way is for fans of people who like virginia andrews um (laughs) vc andrews for your american readers um but it's very, it's very compelling. It's a very dark, sort of sexy novel about, um, you know, secrets and and uh, sort of trying to escape your past. And really, really strongly recommended for people who who like novels that are about sort of secrets and trying to escape your past. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and I believe the author's name is Amy Engel, E-N-G-E-L. Amy Engel. And what was the title again? The Roanoke Girls. The Roanoke uh, Girls. So that's one Roanoke to look out Girls. for next year. Yeah, definitely. So I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly when it's publishing, but I really, really enjoyed that. One of my colleagues bought that um, about a year ago, I think. So it feels like it's been sort of on the boil for a while, but I just, I read it on submission and I loved it. So that's a really fun one. Um, let's see what else have we got coming out. So I'm going to plug one of my own titles. With no shame whatsoever. So Sarah Lotz is um, the author of, she's the author of many, many books. For Hotter, she has written a book called The Three, and it's sort of standalone sequel called Day Four, which is sort of supernatural horror. And um, she's written a new book for us. It's publishing in May of next year called The White Road, which is incredible because it begins in a cave in Wales, and it ends on the peak of Mount Everest. And, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's just absolutely That's a brilliant. great pitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you think so. Um, it's absolutely spectacular. And she, one of the great pleasures of working with Sarah is that she, who she's, she was already a brilliant author when she wrote the three, she just gets better and better with each book. And this book is just absolutely superb. It is a, it is literally an edge of your seat, sort of nail biting experience. And, um, She's one, she's working with her is very different from working with someone like Becky, but she's very involved in the editorial process. She and I have long conversations over Skype, actually, where I'll read the book and I'll talk with her about it. And we'll come up with, I'll say, you know, I sort of had a problem with this and she'll suggest a couple of solutions and we'll sort of hammer out ideas and then she'll just go away and work friends in sort of like a frenzied um, uh few weeks and then come back to me with a new draft that has sort of addressed three of the things that I, I brought up and also 17 other things that I hadn't even thought about. And um, she's absolutely fantastic to work with, none of which has any bearing whatsoever on the fact that her book is brilliant, but it is absolutely fantastic. So I'm really excited about that one. And that's one that I think people should definitely keep an eye out for, because if you like Into Thin Air or The Descent or both, this is definitely the book okay. <laughs> for you. And that, the, that title and author again, what was it again? Sarah Lotz, L-O-T-Z. Yep. Um, and the book is The White Road. The White Road. And that's coming out next year sometime. Yeah, May. May. Okay. And it's uh, the title is A Line from the Wastelands by T.S. Eliot, which does have a bearing on the uh, theme of the book, but I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Okay. Um, and is there, anything, is there anything out at the moment that's like, guys, if you go in the bookshop, you might find this and I think you'll like it. So um, I, I'm going to cheat on this question. The book that I am going to read on my holiday next week is the new Kate Scarsdale, The Wicked Boy, which is about a murder that took place in 
I believe 1883 in um, the East End was a 13 year old boy stabbed his mother to death. And then he and his nine year old brother basically spent the next 10 days wandering around living the high life of all of the money that was left in the house. And (laughs) it's incredible. Um, And the author is this. She's the same journalist who wrote The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, if you remember that from a few years. Yeah. Yeah. And so her books tend to be sort of explorations of the relationship between these sort of incredible crimes. And I mean, incredible in sort of the 19th century sense where it's just hard to believe that they happened. Um, And so in the in the literal sense of the word. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's I bought a copy of that and I'm forcing myself not to touch it until I'm on a holiday next week. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to it. Wow. Okay. We've come come to the end, I think. We're coming to the end of, of our chat. Is there anything else that you'd like to say by way of advice to writers, aspiring writers, um, or anything else about perhaps what, what Holder's doing at the moment? Well, my advice to writers, and this is something that you will have heard before, but I think it bears repeating over and over and over again, is the most important thing that a writer can do is twofold. One, they can write, just write a little bit every day. And every everything that you write is sort of a version, is, is practice. But actually sitting down and making yourself experiment with voice and with characterization, write a short story, write a drabble, you know, whatever it is, just sit down and write something a little bit every day to sort of perfect your ability to sort of get stuff out. Um, but the second most important thing, and by second most, I mean equally important, is to read. Um, and, you know, SFF authors, YA authors, romance authors, especially if you're writing to a niche genre, you have to be familiar with the stuff that's already been written. You have to know the classics. You have to know the books that everybody has read. Just absolutely have to know the bestsellers. And you have to know, you have to, you don't necessarily have to know everything, but you have to know a little bit of the depth and you have to know a little bit of the breadth so that you're not just rehashing old things. You're not re- trying to reinvent the wheel with your book. It's just absolutely incumbent upon any author who wants to be published to make sure, especially if they are writing to to a niche audience. And by niche, I don't mean a tiny audience. I just mean, you know, the science fiction fantasy fans out there, the YA fans, the romance fans, any other any other really well-defined genre like that. Just have to know what has been written so that you can respond to it. Because, you know, if I get a book that's a, a fantasy novel that feels like it came from 1983, no, that's great. But what is it doing that hasn't already been done? I need to need to see a little bit more. I need to see sort of a revision of 1983 or, you know, response to 1983, things like that. So those are, that's my advice. Okay. And then was there anything else you else you wanted to say to us at all before we finish? Um, just good luck to everybody listening. You know, I really look forward to reading your book on submission. <laughs> okay. Well, Anne, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to talk to you. Oh, thank you for asking me to be on the on your show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you again. It was really fun chatting this evening. All right. Thanks no very problem. much, Anne. Cheers. <laughs> Bye-bye.